Man, it's good to be back with y'all today. Thankful for Ryan opening the word and sharing with you guys from the book of Acts last week. And I just know that was an encouragement to you, a challenge for you, as God continues to work in our midst. And we're so thankful for all the various people that God has gifted uh, to communicate his word to us here in this place, that we might continue to grow as a body of believers. Amen? Amen. Hey, listen, let me draw your mind back to just a couple of weeks ago. We've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the second of those. We are in chapter 2 and 1 through 12, and what we saw there was this lengthy section of Scripture that really addresses a number of things that Paul is seeking to correct, he's seeking to inform, and he's seeking to encourage. You see, there were those in their community who came to them and said, life is terrible, Uh, the day of the Lord has already occurred, we have somehow missed that. And on the basis of that, it created a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety in them. So Paul is seeking to correct those things. He's seeking to give them right understanding and a right application. But in the middle of these things, there's something that we caught back in verse 2. He says, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarm. Like that's exactly how they were being. They were being alarmed. They were being shaken. They were being uh, shook loose of the moorings of their faith. And so Paul is calling on them and seeking to impart to them good information to solidify their faith. Now today we're going to have an opportunity to look at chapter 2 and verses 13 through 17. But essentially I want you to be listening for this. That God has saved you and he has commanded you to be unmoved in his word until he calls you into the glory of Christ. Let me say that once more. God has saved you and he has commanded you to be unmoved in his word until he calls you into the glory of Christ. Would you join with me as we read 13 through 17 in the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians? Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Do you join with me as we pray again? Father, we come into this place desirous to meet with you, to surrender our lives to the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And what many of us need here in this moment is comfort. And you give us this great promise that you don't give us comfort that is passing, comfort that is fleeting, unbelievably. Your word here tells us you give to us eternal comfort, eternal comfort, eternal encouragement. That just feels so incredibly contrary to our experience of this morning, of this week, of our recent history. And so, God, I pray that in this time that your spirit would allow our faith to increase, that you would allow us to measure you and your faithfulness to us on what your word says not our slanted vision and views. Father, I pray that you would move in the hearts of any in this place this morning who do not know you, that you would captivate their hearts, that you would call them to faith, and you would radically save them by the power of Jesus. 
God, as we do every week, we want to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who even at this moment are already gathered in worship. Give them a strong experience of your spirit. Draw them closer in unity. Stir them up that we might love one another well and serve you in this community, bringing glory and honor to your name in all things. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Listen, what I want us to see is verse 13, Paul, he says, but we ought to give thanks. And so essentially he's beginning with the notion of prayer. And so he's ended on the destabilizing effect of those who follow this man of lawlessness. He says, God has given them over to a spirit of delusion. He's given them over to believe things that are simply not true. And then he turns, he pivots, and he begins to look right at the church. And he says, but we ought to pray for you. Now, why should he pray for them? He should pray for them because of what their identity is. He should pray, the, pray for them because of who they are. He says, we ought always to pray and give thanks to God for you brothers. Listen to what it says. They are beloved by the Lord. Oh, don't let that miss on you. Don't sleep on that. This understanding that as you came into this place today, if you name the name Jesus and you say, Jesus has saved me from my sins. He has ransomed me from hell. He has transferred me from darkness to light. He has given me spiritual eyes to see spiritual truths. The reality of who you are, your identity today, regardless of what you've done this week, your identity today is that you are beloved by the Lord. I mean, let that sink in. Let that become who you are, and let that become who you are so loud in your head that the lies of the enemy are driven out, right? So the lies of the enemy that communicate to you, you are a failure, you are a liar, you are a, a hypocrite, whatever that lie is right now, and we all have some lie, even as we're beginning to think about it, that's creeping in, right? So this lie is like making its way to center stage in your heart and in your mind. And even as you want to believe this idea that I am beloved, what meets it? What meets it? Is it the fight you have with your wife? Is it how you spoke to your kids? Is it the money you stole from your employer? What is meeting this truth of Scripture? And are you willing to counter the lies of the enemy with the truth of Scripture and say, get out of my mind. I am beloved by the king. God, this is what he says of them. They're shaking. They're quickly shaken. They are destabilized on the basis of what they're hearing in their community. But he says, your identity are those who are beloved by the king of the universe, the creator God, the sustainer, the one and only, whose blood saves, whose spirit maintains. See, he gives us not only our identity, but he gives us our story. Look at what he says next. He says, you are beloved by God, but this is your story. God chose you as first fruits to be saved through two agencies, through the sanctification of his Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. Now let's think about this idea of what it looks like in Thessalonica to be the first fruits. They are those who are this kind of first generation of believers and followers of Jesus Christ. So if there are first fruits, what's the logical inference there? There are other people, right? There are other people who still get to name the name of Jesus. And so we have this unbelievable opportunity as we come into it. Listen, if you and your spouse are following Jesus and your kids don't know him, you are the first fruits of your family. Do you not want to see that legacy of faith continue? If you're a grandparent in this place today and your kids and your grandkids, they don't follow Jesus, you are the first fruits and the deposit is reaping the fruit of the Spirit in your life, do you not want to see it continue? 
You're the first fruits, but don't you want to see this faithfulness continue? So what Paul is asking them to have this understanding of is that you are the first fruits, but yet there's still more. Do you see what he's doing in the middle of being destabilized, in the middle of being worried, in the middle of being caught up in the plight of their own existence? He says, this is who you are, and this is your story, and that can be the story of the other people in Thessalonica too. What would that look like in Greenville, Texas, Joel? What would that look like in Hunt County? If we are able in some sense to drive out the lies of the enemy, to believe who we are, to see what he's done, that he has chosen us, that he has called us. Ephesians 2, Paul says, you're dead in your sins and trespasses, and I ransomed you, I called you to myself. This is what he does for us. This is what he's done for you. And this is what, if you're in this place and you don't know Jesus, this is what he wants to do for you today. He wants you to call you out of the lies. He wants to call you out of the misbelief. He wants to call you out of the sense of desperation, the sense of despondency. He wants to call you out of depression. He wants to wonderfully save you by the power of his word through the blood of his son. This is our God. And his story, his story finds us in the middle of these things. And do you see the beauty of this, what he's saying here? He says he saves you through the sanctification of the Spirit. So he chooses Julie, he chooses Harry, he chooses Clay, I think. And he moves in the middle of these things to call them out of awfulness, ugly, sin, rebellion, and he makes them holy. Y'all, he makes them holy. In the middle of God making them holy, he's not going to them and saying, listen, Larry, I need you to be more holy. He recognizes the sinfulness in Larry's life, his complete and utter inability in himself to be holy. So what does he do? He makes him holy. He declares him holy, and he puts his spirit in there, and his spirit constantly testifies, Larry is mine, Larry is mine, Larry is mine. So every lie Larry believes that I'm not holy, I'm rejected, I'm not one of his, his spirit counters that lie with the truth of God. You are beloved in the king, you are holy. What is up to Larry to do? To believe. He says his spirit is moving to sanctify you. And what has he said here? He says, and you have believed in the truth. What are you believing today? Y'all, there is a war being waged for the thoughts in your mind. What are you believing today? Whose voice are you listening to? How are you countering those thoughts? How are you countering those words? Are you countering with your own wisdom? Are you countering with your own might? Or are you countering them on the counsel of God's word and the strength of his spirit? So he goes to these these people in Thessalonica. He goes to them and says, God has made you holy and you have believed in the truth. Y'all simply, you believe in the gospel. Like it's not something new and novel, yet you've, you've yet to come into the knowledge of. He has saved you through the power of his gospel. He saved you by the power of his gospel. He will always save you by the power of his gospel. There's no difference for us. Like, there's no evolution. There's no growth in this, in this thing. Listen, since I've been at Ridgecrest, I've played golf. Golly, Ryan, help me. Did I tell you three times in 10 years? I think that's right. But like two of them are in the last year that's skewing the average. I've got, to make, I've got to turn over a new leaf. And when I play golf, I am terrible. There's no growth for me. I can hit the ball a long ways in a lot of different directions. <laughs> there is hope for me that I could get better, 
if I would yield over my time, if I would be functionally divorced from my family, absent from my job, cheat on Jesus to dedicate myself to golf. Y'all, that's the only hope for me to be good at it. I'm that bad. And so I've got to make a choice. I want to be good at golf or good at everything else in life. There not that belief, doesn't it kind of find its way into our faith in Jesus? That when you find yourself failing, when you find yourself struggling, that this belief comes into you, if I just try harder, if I just do more, then I can be closer? Do you realize in the middle of that, you're believing a lie from the enemy? Who sanctifies you? Jesus does. Amen. Jesus, I don't know what that was. It's like a digital amen, right? Jesus makes you holy. Do you believe it? And are you living in such a way to testify to the truth of it? Are you living in such a way that your holiness depends upon you and you are the one making you holy? Do not believe the lie. Because this is our destiny. Look at what he says. He says, to this he called you through our gospel that we may be made holy, that we believe to what end, that in the future we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The great news for us is that in Romans 3.23 it says, for all fall short of the glory, all have sinned and fall short of what? Right. All fall short of the glory of God. Like, we are sinners. This is our identity in the world. And what is our identity in Christ? We are saved, we are redeemed, we are beloved. And so which one is easier for us to believe? Which one's easier for us to believe? Which one's easier for the people around us to believe? Certainly, you fall short of the glory. Certainly, it's you're a sinner. Certainly, it's you're a reprobate. But what is the truth of our identity today according to what Scripture says? We are are beloved and his glory is waiting and he's going to dress us in his glory he's going to strip off the filthy rags of the sin the vestigial imprint of the original sin that stains our lives that stings in our relationships that sullies our speech that clouds our mind all those things will be stripped away at the great revealing when we are dressed in his glory. And he makes us right and ready for that in the sanctifying work of his spirit, not our own works. Praise be to God. This is our destiny, y'all. This is where we are headed. And so he asks them in some sense, listen, this is who you are. This is your story. This is where you're headed. This is what you do. This is the charge he gives us. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. Either by spoken word or by our letter. This idea that he's communicating to them that what they stand on is the word they have received. And when we come into this understanding that we contrast this idea with what they're experiencing, he calls them to stand firm, he calls them to hold fast, and back in chapter 2 in verse 2, it says, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Like the reality of what they're going through is anxiety, it's depression, it's fear. And he sees that. And his heart breaks for them. And what the corrective in this is stand firm in the word. They've received the word. 
They've heard Paul communicate the word to them. They've seen the word written to them. They've received this letter. They've received other letters and other instructions that tell them time and time again, put your trust in the only place that does not fail. Put your trust in Jesus. So he calls them to continually, every moment, in and out, to be standing firm and to be holding fast. Calvin, in describing this, said these words. He says, Paul accordingly would have the Thessalonians stand, not merely when others continue to stand, but with a more settled stability, so that on seeing almost all turning aside from the faith and all things full of confusions, they will nevertheless retain their footing. Do you see the picture the brother's painting for us? Though everyone else fall away, though everyone else rebel and walk away from Jesus, still I stand. He says, and assuredly, the calling of God ought to fortify it, ought to strengthen us against all occasions of offense in such a matter, that, even, that not even the entire ruin of the world shall shake, much less overthrow our stability. This is what he wants us to look like. How destabilizing is it when we read the word of a celebrity who has professed the faith in Jesus, and then they walk away three weeks later? Maybe for you that's incredibly destabilizing. Maybe that's just kind of noxious. Maybe that's just kind of annoying or frustrating or irritating. And you ask the questions, was their faith even genuine? You see, the command, the instruction to stand firm and hold fast matters not on the basis of what the people around you do. It doesn't matter. Listen, if you're married in this place today and your spouse bails on Jesus... Don't follow him or her. Stand fast. Hold fast. If you're a a, a child in this place today and you come with your parents and your parents no longer want to go to church, they're not interested in the things of Jesus, stand firm, hold fast. If you're the only believer in your family, the only person who names the name of Jesus, everybody else has bailed on Jesus or is disinterested in Jesus, stand firm. Hold fast. The strength of your salvation, the strength of your faith in Jesus does not depend on the people around you, praise God. The spirit within inside you is testifying to God over and over again. He is beloved. She is beloved. Will you hear it? Will you believe it? They're all going to fail. They're all going to fall. Calvin says, even if the whole world were to fall in ruin, stand fast. Though the world shake, it cannot shake our stability. It's hard. It's difficult. It's tiresome. But do you see how it puts us in this wonderful place of weakness before our God? Can you see how this command is so much more than we're able to do on our own? I need my brother and sister in Christ who is faithful to the king to walk alongside me. I need need to be able to go to somebody and to tell them, I'm struggling. Will you help me? I listened to a podcast this week that Carolyn sent me. Brene Brown's a sociologist from Houston. She's speaking on the subject matter of trust. And she says trust in, in a relationship, one of the things she says, trust in a relationship is developed through asking for help. Through asking for help. 
So when I go to Jeremy, or I go to Amy, or I go to Amy, that's convenient, or I go to Joel, and I say, will you help me? I go to Jason, will you help me? I'm showing them that I trust them, and I'm willing to be vulnerable. And it's this sliding door moment where I'm willing to open up my heart to show my weakness. Will you help me? And what that's communicating to Jason on a subconscious level is he trusts me. We need to trust one another. We need to trust one another. And we need to trust the Lord. And so he gives us our inadequacy as an opportunity to trust him. Do you trust the Lord? Trusting him in the command to stand firm and hold fast looks like it. God, my grip is failing. I can't do this. God, my feet are quavering. I cannot do this. It's being honest with the Lord. I'm struggling with depression. I'm struggling with anxiety. I'm struggling with hate and disbelief. I cannot do this. He does not command you to be perfect. His command understands that only he is, and he stands ready to help. So we've got our destiny. We've got our charge. Let's take this beautiful look in verses 16 and 17 at our God. A.W. Tozer, in, in trying to get at the understanding of why it's so incredibly important that we have a right view of God in his book, simply called The Knowledge of the Holy, wrote these words. He says, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man? Were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of today, we might be able with some precision to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. You see, everything in this, what we do and don't do, hinges on what we believe and think about our God. Look at who he reveals himself to be in 16 and 17. Paul begins to pray and says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who have done two things. They have loved us. They have given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. And the great thing about this, and something that's somewhat hidden in this rendering, is that they're described in terms of who they are. He is, they are the ones who have loved us. You're beloved. Do you believe it? And you're in the status of being beloved. You are a recipient constantly of the love of Jesus and the love of God poured out over your life. Poured out over your life constantly. This is, what he, this is who he is and this is what he is doing. You are loved. You're loved. You don't always feel like it. Don't always believe it. The enemy reminds you of your sin, and he tells you you're going to be con- condemned, you're going to face condemnation on the basis of it. But in reality, what's taking place when you sin? You sin, you go before God, you say, this is what's happened, this is what I've done. Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, stands ready over and over again, making intercession for you. He says, listen, Dad, this is who he is. This is who she is. My blood's covered it. 
even before you're ready to confess your sins, he's faithful and just and ready to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. This is what he does. You are loved. What a powerful thing to hear. What a powerful thing to hear. I hope more than hearing it this morning that it will be your experience. And that as it becomes your experience, that it will change and transition how you think about God and how you think about being someone worthy of his love. Now listen, he's the one who has loved us, but look at what he also is. He is the one who has given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. So how have we received anything from God? Through grace unmerited favor. The blood of Jesus is the conduit whereby we receive anything from God. And what he gives you, even in the midst of depression, even in the midst of despair, even in the midst of anger and anxiety, is eternal comfort. And so what do we do? In the midst of despair, in the midst of despondency, in the midst of thinking, I can't keep all these balls in the air at the same time. I keep dropping them. All the plates are spinning wonderfully until they become my charge, and then they fall and they fall and they fall. What do we do? We have to know who he is. He's the one who loves you. We have to know who he is. He's the one giving you eternal comfort. Are you willing to be comforted? To be comforted requires you express need. Some of us are wonderfully adept at self-comfort and compartmentalization. Self-comfort, it's going to be okay, I can make it through. Compartmentalization, it only affects this area of my life, nothing else. Wouldn't it be nice and neat if our lives and our hearts work that way? They don't. But we can go mad, and we can be ruined trying to live that way. God offers you his love. He extends to you eternal comfort. And Paul's writing to a culture and a people who thought that there was no hope, that really, uh, one of their philosophers said, it's actually really better off that you die early in life because there's no hope and there's nothing after this. There's no hope in this life. There's only enjoyment. The Bible tells us God gives us a good hope. And all that through grace. He's not asking you to do anything. He's asking if you will let him to do something in your life, something in your heart, that you might have an experience of his grace. And that he might comfort your heart and establish them in every good work and word. It's the beauty of what our God stands to do today. He wants to see us, not a group of people quavering, wandering, caught up in the angst of rising and lowering gas prices and winning and losing politicians and, and, and increases in compensation and decreases in compensation through the rise of inflation. There's so much today to stir our angst. There's so much today to cause us heartache, to drive us to despair. But there's something that doesn't change. There's something that will never go away. And this God, he longs to comfort your heart. He longs to draw you close. And he longs to give you the word that your soul needs to hear. You are loved. Would you pray with me?
God, as we enter into this time, as we prepare to take the supper, which is a declaration that we are indeed loved, your son's body was pierced, his blood poured out, he died for our salvation. And in your power, you raised him up to life again. And you invite us to receive the benefits of this salvation. Forgiveness in the name of Jesus. It's not dependent upon our perfection. It's not dependent upon us doing the right thing. 50% of the time, it's dependent upon the good thing that Jesus has done for us in our place. So God, in our weakness, would you let us rest in your strength and stand firm? God, in our fear and anxiety, in our waywardness, would you give us stability of heart to hold fast to the reality of who we are in you and who your word reveals you to be? God, I want to pray for any in this place. God, that today, even as they sit here, they feel completely unworthy, but they know they need you. That they would cry out for salvation in Jesus' name. God, would you save those who do not know you? And would you do so by inviting them into a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ? God, would you cause us to love you and follow you faithfully? In Christ's name. Amen.